Today's reading is from First uh, Peter, chapter three, verses thirteen to twenty-two. We found on page eleven twenty-four of the Bibles next to your seats. This is God's word. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give you the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. It is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. In that state, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. It is only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand, with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. The Word of God. Be to God. Well, hello, everybody. Thank you. My name is Eric. Um, as you heard, it's very, very good to see you. It is also a bit surreal. Um, some of you may recognize me, and then I realize that a number of you, maybe most of you, do not. It's been, I don't know, five years or more since I was here at City Life. And so I was describing it to a couple of people. Uh, a little while ago, this is sort of surreal. In many ways, it's very, very familiar. I recognize some of your faces. In many ways, it's entirely unfamiliar to me. This is, uh, when I was at City Life, y'all were meeting at the Eastern Star Temple, not in this space. I've been here before, but not for a service. Um, I don't recognize most of you, and so that, this is a little bit, a little bit odd for me. Uh, Mark is not in the back telling me what to do. <laughs> that kind of thing, so. Um, yeah, right. <laughs> Right, just in the back of my head. Uh, I, was, I was a lowly intern and was made to carry luggage and things when I was, <laughs> when I was first here. And uh, as John mentioned, um, my wife and I uh, have lived in Davis for the past five years or so, and, and we have a church there. But it's, re- it's really, really good uh, to be with you. Thank you for having me. Uh, would you join me in a word of prayer? Gracious God, we come before you uh, this morning thankful for the opportunity to gather together. Uh, We recognize that uh, we come from all sorts of backgrounds and experiences and places on our own uh, spiritual journey. For some of us, the words that we just heard read are familiar and and a source of joy and comfort. For some of us, they are uh, unfamiliar, perhaps brand new. Some of us come to this service full of faith and joy. For some of us, we come with questions and skepticism and in doubt. Some of us are a mixture of all of the above. So in many ways, we come to this, this space and these words from, from all sorts of places, and yet, 
help us to see this morning that in the ways that matter, all of us are the same. All of us are in need and looking for hope. All of us are in need of your grace. Teach us through your word and spirit that you see us exactly as we are, and your response was to move towards us in redeeming and renewing love. You see us in all of our beauty and our brokenness. You see us in our triumph and our tragedy, and you come to us in renewing love. God of life, your spirit raised Jesus from the dead. Your spirit inspired the prophets and writers of scripture. Your spirit draws us to Christ and helps us to acknowledge him as Lord. We ask that you will now send your spirit to give us deeper insight, encouragement, faith, and hope through the proclamation of your Easter gospel. Amen. <clears throat> Excuse me. Well, every year, the, uh, the online science magazine, The Edge. Any readers of The Edge here? So nobody. <laughs> One. Excellent. Uh, every year, well, there's this online science magazine called The Edge. And it's pretty prominent. You should maybe look it up. Uh, they ask a single question every year to a number of uh, prominent scientists and academics and writers. They'll throw the occasional musician and artist in there just to keep things fair, I suppose. And uh, they always ask a question, and then they compile the responses on their website. And at the end of the year, they publish the responses in a book. And the question is always something profound. And last year, in 2013, the question was simply this. What should we be worried about? Now, the responses ranged from the humorous to the sincere to the alarming, as I suppose you can imagine. And so John Tooby, an evolutionary scientist, he said, we should be worried about exploding stars and the eventual collapse of the sun. I'm not kidding. <laughs> David Galturner was a Yale, is a Yale computer scientist. He's worried that the Internet's insatiable demand for words has created a global devaluation of words. In short, he said, I'm worried about Internet drivel. And I'm worried nobody else is worried about internet drivel. Daniel Hills is a physicist and computer scientist. He's worried that search engines like Google now are forced to have an editorial point of view. They're not a generic search. They're actually giving you uh, their editorial point of view when you search for something. And he's worried about their opinions. This one made me laugh. Uh, Helen Fisher is a bio biological anthropologist. She answered the question, what should we be worried about with one word? Men. Some of you are nodding in agreement right now. Those of you that are honest are really nodding in agreement right now, I suppose. Uh, but in, in, there was like 156 responses or something like that. And in all 156 of them, they're all fascinating. But, but I, I was really curious and sort of intrigued by, by a man named Dan Sperber. He's a social and cognitive scientist at the Center for National Research in Paris. And he worries that in our day and age, we actually worry about all the wrong things. So he wrote this, scientific and technical developments introduce novel opportunities and risks that we had not even imagined at a faster and faster pace. But what I'm particularly worried about, he says, is that humans will be less and less able to appreciate what they should really be worrying about and that their worries will actually do more harm than good. Then he says this, maybe just as on a boat in the rapids, one should not try to slow down anything, but just try to optimize a trajectory you don't really control. Not because safety is guaranteed and optimism is justified. After all, the worst could happen. He says, but because there is no better option than hope. Now, I think Professor Sperger is on to something. 
to cynical and suspicious people like you and I. When there is no shortage of things to worry about in the world. He holds out something that all of us, whether you consider yourself a Christian or not, we all look for. And I'd suggest we all desperately need. He holds out to us the promise of hope. Now, the Apostle Peter, writing some 2,000 years earlier, to a group of people no less suspicious and cynical than you or I, he wrote a letter to this new community, to a group of people that was exploring Christian faith. Some had been following Jesus for a while. Some were still trying to figure out if they could. Some were decidedly not interested at all, but were still sort of curious. In other words, a group a lot like this one. He wrote them a letter. And those people then, no less than than those of us sitting here today, were asking the question, given all of the possibilities for anxiety and worry in our age, now what do we do? Is there any sort of hope held out to us? Is there any sort of meaning? Their questions are still our questions. And so Peter, like Professor Sperber, suggests that even in our day and age, at the end of the day, there is no better option than hope. So I want us to spend just a few moments together looking at this ancient letter and reading over the shoulder of these people as it were. Now, as I mentioned, Peter's written a letter to a group of people, a lot like this one, who are starting to wonder about whether hope is even possible. And as it becomes in the first century more and more dangerous to be a Christian, as they are viewed with skepticism and even suspicion and contempt by others around them, Peter writes this letter. In the middle part of the first century, uh, Christianity had been tolerated for a number of years as sort of a, a strange offshoot of a sect of Judaism, but it was becoming to be viewed with more and more suspicion. And though widespread persecution hadn't really broken out yet when Peter was writing this letter in all likelihood, pockets of it were starting to to happen. And Christians weren't viewed with suspicion because they were considered to be dangerous to the Roman Empire in sort of a violent overthrow revolutionary kind of sense. They were considered to be dangerous to the empire because they they upended the stability of the Roman Empire. They weren't playing by the same rules. They weren't holding the same values. In short... This, this small group of Jesus followers were living by a different story. One story proclaimed Jesus as Lord, and one, Caesar and the Roman Empire. And the two, people were starting to see, were incompatible. So Peter writes to this group of people, he says this, Who's going to harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you're blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to, give t- to answer everyone who asks you to give reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience. Now, notice what Peter does in this section of this letter. He doesn't simply explain everything away. He doesn't do what I as a parent sometimes do to my children, which, incidentally, they don't really care for either. I pat them on the head and say, they're there, everything's going to be fine. They actually want a reason. They don't always just trust me. Don't tell me everything's going to be fine. I want to know. Where are you going to be? Can I be with you? Can I stand next to you? You and mom are going out on a date. Who's going to take care of us? Do I like that person or not? (laughs) Will they let us stay up later than usual? Will we get extra ice cream? They want to know these kinds of things, whether they say it out loud or not. And we're the same way. Peter doesn't say, they're there, everything will be fine. He actually does justice to their situation and to our questions. 
He is, is, is rather honest with them. Did you notice this? He's rather honest with them and says, listen, suffering exists and you will in all likelihood encounter it if you haven't already. You will suffer. There are things to be afraid of in the world. And yet, Peter says, ultimately, you need not fear them. Now, you and I live in a day and age very much different from the Roman Empire in the first century. And yet, it's strikingly similar. Like those people then, we have plenty to worry about. In fact, I'm guessing that most of us here are cynical enough to assume that if you're not worried about something, you're not paying attention. If you're not worried about global warming, you ought to be. If you're not worried about uh, biking the streets of Sacramento without a helmet on, you probably should be. If you're not worried about raising children in a day and age like this, well, then you really should be. If you're not worried about uh, how difficult it can be to find a meaningful relationship or how difficult it can be to find a good roommate or how difficult it can be to, to find a good direction for your trajectory, for your vocation, well, then you're not paying attention. And I'll bet that all of us sitting here, if you think hmm, maybe for 30 seconds or more, you will be able to bring to the front of your mind something that makes you actually physically feel different. Your back will start to tense up. Maybe your palms start to sweat. Maybe you get a headache or something. All of us find things to worry about, whether you consider yourself a Christian or not. We all experience this. And so Peter, in a clever little play on words, he says, don't fear their threats. In your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Now, that little word there, revere, is actually the same word as fear. And so Peter says, essentially, don't fear things, fear Christ as Lord. Now, fear in ancient meds, uh, modes of speaking is simply another word for trust. And so Peter uses the same word to say two different things. Don't fear, like be afraid of those things. Instead, trust Christ the Lord. Now, I'm aware that for some of you here today, this just confirms all of your suspicions about Christianity. Perhaps you're here and you came with a friend or, or you're checking out faith and spirituality for the first time in a while or somebody promised you lunch afterwards. If you would just come to church with them, um, you should order something nice on the menu. Go for it. Uh, and you're wondering, this just confirms all of my suspicions about Christianity, that really at the end of the day, it's about behavior modification and people sticking their head in the sand people oblivious to the things around them in the world, or maybe people who see them but just choose to ignore it. And yet, I think there's actually deep wisdom here for us, regardless of whether you believe in Christianity or not. Most of us, given the world in which we live in, sort of find ourselves in one of two camps. When we find things that we're worried about, we either ignore them ourselves or we pre and pretend they don't exist, or we medicate them away. Uh, a couple of days ago, I was having tea. I'm usually a coffee drinker, but for whatever reason, I decided to have tea. And uh, as I was, and so I don't drink a lot of tea, and so I was sort of curious about the tea that I was drinking. It was the one thing that I could find. I didn't know if I'd like it. So I'm steeping the tea in the hot water, and I start to look at the little bag that it comes in. And it says these words on the tea that I had chosen, inadvertently. I kid you not, it says this. This relaxing tea will soothe your fears and carry your worries far away. That is a lot for a tea to promise. <laughs> so then, as I'm sipping my relaxing and soothing tea, 
Uh, my wife had recently um, brought home, um, I think it was Sunset Magazine or, or something like that, where it was talking about various camping spots in California, Northern California, which is why she brought it home. And so I'm sipping my soothing and relaxing tea, and I'm thumbing through this magazine looking for good camping spots, and I found a spot, according to the magazine, on the northern coast of California that, quote, the views are so good, your worries will evaporate like the morning mist. So, I'm drinking tea that's going to soothe my fears away, whilst looking at a picture that promises to evaporate my fears like the morning mist. I'm a pretty cynical guy, I admit that to be the case, but I think all of us in this room probably know that that's just good marketing, right? We know that tea ultimately can't deliver on its promises. And we also know, no matter how good those views are, our worries are probably going to follow us to the coast. Even if we're able to escape them for five or seven minutes, however long it takes you to drink a cup of tea, or five to seven days, however long you can manage to spend at that camping site. You and I know that at the end of the day, we're going to finish the cup of tea. And at the end of the week, we're going to have to go back to our job. And we're going to have to go back to our apartment or our house. We're going to go back to life as normal. It's easy for us to get on these sort of rhythms of, of seeking to escape our worries and our fears. And so we do this. We try to medicate them away or we forget them entirely. We jump from experience to experience, from vacation to vacation, soothing our fears for a few moments and then jumping back into the rat race. Or we find things like some tea to take the edge off at the end of the day, or maybe something a little stiffer to take the edge off at the end of the day. And then the next morning, we start the race all over. We find some of these destructive rhythms of attempts to escape. And we know at the end of the day, friends, that ultimately they don't deliver. Others of us try to find a sense of security and rest and, and maybe what we can accomplish. For some of you, it's uh, the acclaim that you've earned in your career, the respect from your colleagues. Then you'll feel safe and secure. If your job has a great trajectory, well then, I'll be fine. For some of you, it's getting a few extra letters at the end of your name. When I finish this degree, then I'll have the sort of security that I really am looking for. For some of you, it's your relationship status. When I finally settle down or when I find somebody to share life with or maybe when I just feel settled and like normal in a relationship, then I'll have a sense of security and peace. Some of us, it's the respect of our colleagues or maybe you're even your own physical beauty. All of us at the end of the day, friends, this is what Peter notices about us. You and I, we will fear as in trust something. We will put our trust in something. The only question is, will what you put your trust in, can it actually hold you up? Is it actually stable enough for you to put your hopes and dreams, your entire life, will you stake on it? The only question is, can what you trust in deliver ultimately? Peter insists, do not fear their threats. Instead, fear Christ the Lord. Now, Peter is actually clipping those lines from an ancient Hebrew poet and prophet named Isaiah. We had some words from Isaiah at the service, uh, at the beginning of our service as well. Hundreds of years before Peter was writing, this prophet named Isaiah wrote these words in a context where there was plenty to be frightened about. The southern kingdom of Judah, hundreds of years before, was in a precarious position. 
two rival armies had decided to become allies and were marching against this kingdom of Judah. And so war was at their doorstep, while simultaneously the global superpower behemoth of Assyria was waiting in the wings, also at a different spot in their border, just sort of watching joyfully as these minor little skirmishes were happening, waiting to suck the entire thing in and expand the Assyrian Empire, which did in fact occur for much of the world. And so in that context, where war seems inevitable, in inevitability, and where it was not a question of when they're going to get conquered, but by whom? The prophet Isaiah comes into that situation and writes, Do not fear what they fear. The Lord Almighty is the one you are to fear. But he doesn't simply pat them on the head and say, There, there, everything's going to be fine. Isaiah actually points to something specific. And he says, Here's why you're not supposed to fear. A few verses later, Isaiah writes this, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in a land of the shadow, a light has dawned. For to us, a child is born. And to us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Those are words that if you find yourself back at City Life Church in, oh, let's say December, you'll likely hear. Those are Advent Christmassy kind of words. Because Christians have long insisted from the New Testament on that what Isaiah was pointing to was a grand day when God would send his Messiah and begin to make all things new. And so, Peter, taking his cue from Isaiah, whereas Isaiah looks forward to a promised son, Peter inserts the name of Jesus, or Christ the Lord, and he looks back. Isaiah looks forward to a day when a Messiah would come, and Peter looks back and says, ah, it's Jesus. This is why you're not to fear. It's not a pat-pat on the head. It's a historical reality for Peter. Peter says, I'm not just giving you a system of beliefs. I'm not giving you a pat of head. I am pointing to a person. This is why you're not to fear. He changes the quote and inserts Jesus into it. And then he says, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Peter points to those readers then, and to those of us here today, and he points to Jesus. Friends, everything else we attempt to put our trust in will ultimately let us down. Whether it's a cup of tea, or a great camping site, or a phenomenal job, or a killer relationship, or a great new roommate, whatever it is, ultimately at the end of the day, it will not hold you up as much as you need. Peter says, Jesus will. He wants his love. This is why in sort of a difficult and obtuse passage, uh, starting at verse 18, he starts to go off on what seems like a tangent about baptism and Noah and some crazy things. It's all like Peter's meandering sort of way of saying, listen, what is most true about you is not the letters after your name. It is not your relationship status. It is not your job. It is not where you find yourself or what stage of life you find yourself in. Peter insists the story of which you are a part, what is most true about you, is not even what you have done. It's what Jesus has done on your behalf. Jesus is God coming among us to shelter us, to give us refuge in a time of danger. 
Jesus suffering and dying is God delivering us from our contradiction and shame and injustice and darkness. Jesus rising from the dead is God rescuing us from death once and for all. For Peter, when you're connected to God, this becomes your story. That's the reference to baptism and Noah. Baptism is the sign and seal par excellence that like Noah, what's most true about you is that you've been rescued through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Friends, what this means is that you and I, because of Jesus, because of the cross and the empty tomb, you and I can actually trust God. You and I can live lives of radical, settled trust because of something that happened. Peter doesn't give us a list of to-dos. He doesn't give us a set of moral beliefs. He doesn't even give us ethical uh, behavioral modification. He says, you can trust God because a man lived, died, and rose from the dead. You can trust God because God has given us himself completely to us in Jesus. You can entrust your whole self to God in all of your uncertain moments because in Jesus, God is one come among, come among us to suffer with and for us. No tea has promised you that. No camping site has promised you that. No job or career or relationship status has promised or ever will promise to suffer and die on your behalf. Friends, the Easter message, this season of Easter tide that we're in, means that you and I can trust God even in the midst of deep anxiety and fear. Jean-Pierre de Cousat was a 17th century French Jesuit priest. He put it like this. He wrote, to escape the distress caused by the regret for the past or fear about the future. This is the rule to follow. Leave the past to the infinite mercy of God the future to his good providence and give the present wholly to his love by being faithful to his grace. Friends, you and I can trust God because Jesus joins us in our vulnerability. You and I can trust God because Jesus is God delivering on his promise to be faithful to us even when we are unfaithful to him. Jesus is God promising to you through his empty tomb that even in the face of death, the signature reminder that our lives are not our own, that ultimately you can live a life of settled trust in the promises of God. So practically speaking, how do we do what Peter here calls us to do? How do we choose to trust and revere Christ in the midst of all our uncertainty? Well, Peter actually gives us a few hints. He says this, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you, to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience. Peter suggests you need to be prepared to give an answer for your hope. Now, by this, Peter does not mean be that sort of creepy person who is always looking to slip Jesus into a conversation, even at the most inopportune time. If someone asks you, how hot is it going to be today? Or do you know what the time is? Peter is not suggesting you say 95 degrees and Jesus is Lord. <laughs> that is not his point 
in this passage. Peter is actually thinking much more holistically here. He is suggesting to his readers then and those of us reading now that to be ready is to be trained and prepared and schooled in the school of trust. It's to be saturated in the redemptive story of God. This is why, for centuries, Christians have done a variety of practices to more and more school ourselves in this story of God. This is why Christians for centuries have taken their worry and converted it into prayer. This is why for centuries Christians have gone to the Psalms and they've prayed them over and over again. This is why Christians gather and do this ridiculous thing like coming here on a Sunday morning when you have so many other things you could be doing. Because it's in the context like this that we are schooled more and more and more through worship and song, through word and sacrament in what it means to trust God. This is why we celebrate baptism. Why we place water in a bowl and, and sprinkle it over babies or, or have adults or kids stand here and make promises to God. Because God is actually promising something to them first. We do these things and a host of others. Over and over and over. To remind ourselves, to saturate ourselves, to be prepared and schooled in the story of the grace of God. To remind ourselves that what is most true about us is not what we have done or what's been done to us. Christians believe, friends, that what is most true about them is what Jesus has done on their behalf. And so we can trust God. Like uh, a number of others before him, when the brilliant ethicist John Cavanaugh went to work for three months at the House of Dying in Calcutta, he went there uh, in, because he was having trouble focusing his own vision for his vocation. And so he thought the best way to clear his head and figure out what to do next was to donate some of his time and just go serve some of the least fortunate in the world. And so, like others, he went to Calcutta to try to, not necessarily to be with Mother Teresa, but to serve alongside of her. And amazingly, he ended up meeting Mother Teresa on the first day that he's there. And so an author tells this story. Um, the first morning he's there, he meets Mother Teresa, and she asks him, what can I do for you? And Kavanaugh, thinking for a moment, he decides the only thing appropriate to ask of a woman like Mother Teresa is simply to say, will you pray for me? That seemed like the gentlest response he could think of in that moment. And so she asked him, well, what do you want me to pray for? Now, he had traveled thousands of miles, donated his time and his money, put his career on hold for this very thing to figure out what brought him to Calcutta in the first place. Afraid and unsure of what to do next in his life, filled with anxiety, he simply said to her, I want you to pray that I have clarity as I move forward. I want you to pray for clarity. This indomitable old nun, hunched over from years of labor, looks up at this world-famous ethicist and says, No. I won't do that for you. I won't make that my prayer. Baffled, Kavanaugh said, can I ask why not? And she responded, clarity is the last thing you're clinging to. And it's the last thing you must let go of. I won't make that my prayer for you. And he said, but I want what you have. You seem settled and confident and trusting. I, you obviously have clarity. I want what you have. At this, Mother Teresa laughed, and she said, I have never had clarity. What I have always had is trust. And so I pray 
I will make it my prayer that you can trust God. So City Life Church, may you take your worries and convert them to prayer. May you find yourself participating in the means of grace. May you serve others around you in the city of Sacramento. May you immerse yourself in the gracious story of God. And may you always, always, always trust God. Let's pray together. Gracious God, We pray that you would bless us now with your spirit. That these words from Peter, these ancient words, would be for more and more of us. A path to life and a settled trust and confidence in your grace. As you have taught us with your words, so now move among us with your spirit in sacrament. Show us of your deep love to us. Show us that in spite of our contradiction, you come to us in grace. Seeking to change and transform and renew us. Help us to be more and more a people that trust in you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.